Hello, and welcome to the QBW Podcast with me, your host, Carol Holtzclaw. Let's dive right in. Hello, Dr. Nicole Charles Lennon. I am so excited to have an opportunity to speak with you today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Amazing. So for all the people that don't know or that do know, um, Dr. Charles Lennon is a clinical and sports psychologist in private practice who works with professional sports and C-suite executives and currently working with the Texas Rangers. So, um, I mean, that's incredible and fascinating. And I know that that takes a lot of school and a lot of clinical hours. Um, and I didn't have the stomach to go in that direction, but I thought about it <laughs> um, because I also have done a lot of school. Um, but I would love to hear your superhero origin story. You know, how did, how did you get here? Um, well, I like to tell people I started in jail. Um, so my training, (laughs) (laughs) I I had, um, aspirations to become a a deputy warden. And so my, most of my training through school and, and practicum had been, um, in some sort of correctional facility, working with children, adolescents, and adults on some spectrum of adjudication. And so oh I, when I was on postdoc, um, I was working in Chicago at the Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center, which is the first and the largest um, juvenile correctional facility in the country. And while I was there, I happened to mention to one of my supervisors that um, I was interested in sports in some way. Um, <laughs> so like, I guess background, I played basketball through college and I coached AAU in high school while I was in grad school for a little bit and I just missed being around sports um and so I was just interested in like what could I do and and someone mentioned to me that there was this woman in the Chicago area who was um giving a talk about sports psychology and I was like oh that's cool so I happened to go this woman gives this really cool sort of sports psych 101 like what does she do and kind of gives like basic information about what sports psych is and so after the talk I went up to her and just asked her a bunch of different questions and she said um yeah sports is really like sports psych is relatively new so at this point find a position and get your foot in the door and that woman um, is Dr. Wendy Bollaby and she currently works for the Chicago Bulls another black woman um and I tell the story all the time and she doesn't stop telling the story because she doesn't believe me but (laughs) That's exactly how I learned about what sports like was. So essentially after my postdoc, um, they offered uh, to allow me to stay on as full-time staff and I opted not to. Um, I moved home and I lived with my sister in her spare bedroom on an air mattress for three months and I was looking for jobs. Um, And I applied to a bunch of different things and I figured if if I ever was going to make sort of a shift, a pivot in my career, this would be the time to do it. And so Mm -hmm. I just applied for a bunch of different positions I ended up getting um, a, a position at Auburn University, um, mm-hmm. and I worked there for a few years. And then I knew at some point I wanted to make the leap to professional sports. And so when a position with the Denver Broncos opened up, I applied and got that job and worked there for a little over a season. And then I knew at some point that I wanted to work for myself, and so it was good timing. I opted to start a private practice. And like you mentioned before, I now currently work with the Texas Rangers um, through my private practice, and it's just been um, kind of a whirlwind, kind of crazy. Sometimes I, I look, I kind of sit back and look like, how did I even, how did I get here? Like, what is, what is my life right now? Um, but it's so much fun. It's, it's kind of like a, a dream to me. Um, and it's just been exciting. 
Yeah, that's a lot. You've just got a lot. <laughs> um, so I just want to unpack a few things. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> um, my goodness. So the psychology that you would do for working in detention centers, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, how does that lend itself to what it is that you're doing today? Do you feel like there's things where you're like, oh, there's some crossover and like some of these different things or issues or does it yeah. just feel like a complete turnaround? No, I think a lot of the work that we do and we as mental health professionals, um, I think a lot of the work that we do is generalizable. And so working um, in correctional facilities with kids and young adults, um, they're they're kind of difficult to work with, not just because they're not because they're necessarily because they're incarcerated, because they're they're teenagers and teenagers are hard. Yeah. Um, and so if you can work with teenagers uh, who have most of them who have, you know, mental health challenges and behavioral challenges, you can work with just about anybody. Um, but honestly, the kids were not, not the hardest part of the job. It was the adults who sometimes had difficulty working with the kids and kind of communicating with them in effective ways. And so you had a lot of big personalities and a lot of different people who had different ideas about how to help these kids. And so if you can learn to work on a team full of people who have a bunch of different perspectives um, and backgrounds and they speak sort of proverbially different languages, it makes Mm -hmm. it a whole lot easier when you get to this level. And it's kind of the same thing. You have a lot of big personalities and Mm -hmm. folks usually want what they want yesterday. And so figuring out how to help people be their best and um, perform their best while also communicating with them in a way that's effective. Awesome. Um, Okay. So then when you were at Auburn and working in the Department of Athletics, Mm -hmm. Was that the first time that they had had a clinical psychologist be on staff or was it something that's relatively new? I feel like in college athletic departments now, um, as you probably know better than I do because this is your space, but you know, mental health right now is like the hot issue, hot topic, yeah. something that a lot of departments, whether they really internally care about it or not, you know, they, I feel like you gotta say that, you know, how can you not, you have to have trained people on staff to be able to best serve your department right Um, yeah so was it was it relatively new what did that look like did you create that opportunity what what did you do when you were with Auburn yeah so no I did not create the opportunity I actually was the third person on staff so I joined a team of two other people Um, I will say that Auburn was probably a little bit ahead of the curve to have so many folks mental health people on staff specifically for athletics Um, so at the time in the SEC I want to say we were probably the only SEC school that had three mental health professionals embedded in athletics. At now, at this awesome. point, um, I think multiple SEC schools have that. But at the time, we were a little bit ahead of the curve. And sports psych in athletics was new-ish at that time. Um, but mm-hmm. no, I definitely joined a team of, of, two, of two folks. And I did it on purpose because I knew that if this was my first sort of foray into sports, like I didn't want to do it by myself. I didn't want to try to figure out how to build something by myself. I wanted to go yeah. and learn under somebody, um, which I had the opportunity to do. So that was great. But no, yeah, there were, there were three of us then. Um, and we got to work with our athletic trainers and our physicians and our dietitians, our strength and conditioning staff. Um, so we had a full staff of people, a team of people behind all of the, the, the sports teams we had there. That's incredible. Um, yeah, that is very forward thinking of them to have a staff. Um, I just, I mean, I just think I work in college athletics and it's like, I just, 
it seems so overwhelming, you know, to not have people yeah. that are trained, that are dedicated within your athletic department. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting but, because like, I know that while at Auburn and pro- I think again, now at most, if not all of the SEC schools, um, there is somebody who works in athletics to work specifically with the athletes in, in support staff. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it takes, a, it's kind of a niche market really, because you have plenty of qualified mental health folks, but um, mm-hmm. sports and athletics is a very unique sort of environment. And so if you don't know that culture, um, it can be hard to kind of integrate yourself and it's a steep learning curve. I'll say that. And so I, again, mm-hmm. having had background in being a former athlete and having been a coach for a little bit, it was mm-hmm. certainly helpful, but yeah, it can be overwhelming, especially if you don't have people who one are trained to do the mental health part of the work and two don't understand sport culture. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because I would think that there would be a need, I mean, if you could just build the perfect athletic department, right, or programming around a team or Mm -hmm. organization, I feel almost as if you need somebody in the mental health space that can deal with crisis, Mm -hmm. as well as then like mental performance, but then Mm -hmm. you also just need somebody who's there for all other general mental health needs I mean yeah like it's I don't know that just seems no yeah it's you're putting a lot on people in that space as well too it is a lot which why I was which is why I was so grateful to join a team of people and not try to do it all obviously all by myself um at that time I I I think we had um we had 17 teams um and spread across three people and so luckily of the three of us two of us myself included we did both performance and clinical work. And so mm. you're right. You do need somebody who can do the mental health crisis stuff. And then also to help some folks who um, be able to do the performance side of things. Um, and then there's all, also just the other stuff that you mentioned that comes up with, again, we're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds. So they're also in a huge um, developmental part of their lives. And so it's not mm-hmm. just the sports. It's like all of the other things that come with being in that age group. Ooh, intense. So, um, I want to talk about professional sport and professional mm-hmm. um, athletes that you have worked with. So, your experience—what was that like at the Broncos, and what did you do? Yeah, so with the Broncos, I did a role very similar to what I did at Auburn, which was a combination of performance and clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I worked with our players and staff for any performance concerns, obviously. And then if there are any sort of off the field mm-hmm. mental health concerns that they had that could affect their performance on the field, I, I managed that. So it was some individual stuff. Um, a little bit of group stuff, some consultations, some education. So the NFL, at least at the time, um, I'm sure they still do have um, a series of presentations that are mandated and a couple of those are mental health. And so teaching mm-hmm. staff and players about like signs and symptoms of mental health and, and um, ch- mental health and mental health challenges um, and, and um, educating the guys on what to do if you notice those things, who do you go to for help? Um, how do you help somebody else if you notice a teammate or a friend or a family member who needs help? So I did a lot of um, consultation and education. Um, and it was nice because Again, it was my first um, experience working in professional sports. And so I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know if this was a thing that, you know, you just check the box and we have somebody on staff yeah. and nobody comes and talks to me. Um, mm-hmm. But it was quite the opposite. I had such great relationships with the guys. I was, I want to say like within my first 
week or so there, I had already had like seven sessions lined up. And so I thought I was just going to come in and kind of just walk around and meet people and learn names, but they were eager to, um, to use my services. And I was really happy about that. So had oh, some really great relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's awesome. Because I would think it would be so, well, I guess it's changing. Um, but I would think that it would still be kind of stigmatized at that level with men and the NFL, you know, I feel like it might not be that. And then yeah. it would just be something where they're checking a box. So that is just, wonderful I thought it might have been (laughs) that too I thought I certainly thought that was going to be my experience that you know oh you know big strong men you know we don't talk about our feelings but in fact what I found was one um, a lot of them had come from programs that had someone like me working in their department working in athletics so they were already familiar with the kind of work that I did so it didn't take a lot of priming for them to kind of understand my role I also wasn't the first person in my role and my my understanding was I was the first full-time person but I wasn't the first person in that role for the Broncos so Mm -hmm. they had already had some exposure to the type the type of work that I was um, available to do and so yeah like I said they were super open to um, coming and talking with me I think the other part of it was um, is that I presented me myself and the work that I do um, I always tell people that I don't want the only time that you see me to be when there's a problem um, mm. so I wanted to make sure that I was available and present so I'd be in the training room in the um, the weight room and I was on the field during practices and I also traveled with them um, for games and so they always saw me and so mm-hmm. it wasn't like I was the Wizard of Oz hiding behind the curtain and it was like no one knew what I did like, <laughs> they knew me as a person first before they knew me as a clinician and so I think that was super helpful too building those relationships so that if and when they had an issue it didn't feel so scary coming to talk to me mm-hmm. yeah that is that's incredible um just ignorantly I guess I would think it wouldn't have been like that so that's great to hear that it is um and what would be your biggest differences you feel like working with college student-athletes and then professional athletes? Yeah, so I think the first difference that I noticed, other than the age, right? Um, And obviously our rookies were coming fresh out of college, so they were a little bit younger. But I think the first thing that I noticed is that the professional guys didn't need quite as much. And I think, again, it had something to do with where they were developmentally. They're a little bit older. A lot of them had families Mm -hmm. and had partners. And um, so they kind of had already established their support systems. Whereas Mm -hmm. with college students, sometimes they're still trying to figure that thing out. Um, And the other thing is, again, college age, 18 to 22, 24-ish, is if you're ever going to experience a mental health challenge or mental health diagnosis, there's a really, really good chance that that age range is when it first starts to rear its head. And so Mm -hmm. in college, these kids are sometimes just sort of recognizing something is not okay with me and they're trying to figure out what that thing is once you get to professional level and you're a little bit older you may have already sort of gone through that phase and have already been diagnosed and so at this point we're just trying to sort of um, continue treatment or maintain whatever treatment you've had in the past and so I think the first the, the biggest difference is like being a little bit older having support system and kind of knowing yourself a little bit better you just, they didn't need quite as much and I think the other part of it is um obviously as a professional playing this sport is quite literally your job. Whereas for Mm -hmm. college athletes, it's a part of what they do, but not the only thing that they do. And so for the professional athletes, there's a whole lot more pressure I'd say um, in terms of being able to perform um, Mm -hmm. come game day. On top of that, you have billions of people who are watching you. So you're doing this thing that is your job and other people 
you know, we'll say oh, it's just a game. That that's true. And also, this game is quite literally my job. It's my um, my means. Um, it's how I support my family. And so, there's a whole lot more pressure on being able to perform well when the time comes. And everybody's watching you and everybody has something to say and Twitter exists and Instagram exists. <laughs> and, you know, people always think they know everything and, and you know, yes. mon- you know, um, you get to watch the game and have a lot to say, um, but you don't really always know what's going on sort of behind the scenes. No, absolutely. I am absolutely the best coach couch couch coach for like any sport sports I've never played or just you know passing through and land on something oh yeah I can tell you (laughs) (laughs) who should be who should be cut who should be run out Uh they should have played it you know so yeah no I totally get that the pressure of that I I can't even imagine um it does seem like it would be it's so easy to forget Mm -hmm. you know the human part of it and you're right it's a game and so, yeah, a lot of people just weigh in and say horrible, terrible things. Yeah. Um, I would say I've never done the whole Twitter finger thing and said anything crazy about somebody, um, you know, like being a fan of something or not a fan of something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't even imagine now being a parent. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I would yeah. have to fight that person. Right. I would have to fight that man. Like if they said something about my kid, we're going to have to I'm gonna have to hunt them down. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so in a role like mine, you build relationships with these guys and you know them as, as humans and you know them as fathers and sons and brothers and, um, and you care about them as people. And so Mm -hmm. when you hear folks or you read things and everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I think people often forget there's a human, um, that you're aiming those words toward. And so when you know these people, it stings a whole lot more because and especially in my role, when I, I might be aware of some things that this guy is dealing with kind of personally, whether it's mental health or his family or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I know sort of like the behind the scenes stuff in addition to the performance stuff, in addition to the things that they read online. Um, and it's like, guys, they're still humans, right? And so yeah. whether you agree with how well they played or whatever decision the coach made, like these are still human beings who have feelings and they read these things. Mm-hmm. That's ugh, just so intense. Um, did you know football before you worked with the Broncos? Not even a little bit. No, nope, not at all. Not even a little bit. So my wife is a huge sports fan. She loves all kinds of sports. And so um, she, and she watches football. And she it's funny watching um, football with her because – I'm kind of halfway paying attention and she'll say something. And then it's funny because the commentator will say the same thing right after she does. So she knows the sport. And so I was familiar, Mm -hmm. like I watch football, but I don't know. I don't know football. Like I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't call plays. I don't, I don't know anything like that. Right. Um, so, but, and so what I would do is I would just like listen to kind of, um, learn. So I, I got the, obviously the general idea of how football works, totally understand that, but just like the ins and outs did, had no clue. And so I had to learn kind of on the fly really quickly and being mm-hmm. on the sideline, you, you learn a whole lot because you're getting like firsthand knowledge of this game and you're getting firsthand knowledge of the game from people who do it really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. So it was again, a steep learning curve for me, but <clears throat> to have my wife, the expert at home and then work <laughs> with these guys who are literal experts on the field, um, yeah, I had a lot to learn really quickly. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, 
and then with the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. So I, as little as I know about football, I feel like I know even less about baseball. Yeah, you and, so, you and me both. <laughs> I've gone to games, but, you know, I'm, I'm lost. Um, I do know baseball, I feel like the one thing about professional baseball is they're always gone, always on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just can't even imagine the type of emotional toll that that can take um, as them on athletes, but then their families. And, I, you know, I just have always thought that that also too, other than I feel like football was being such a high impact sport mm-hmm. is one thing when it comes to your mental health. Um, but, and then all of the other circumstances, but Texas, uh, but Texas Ranger, but baseball seems as if that would be something as well that would just be really taxing. So yeah. how has that experience been? Baseball is like, a whole different world and I'm imagining that each sport has it again has its own culture but I've Mm -hmm. never been around baseball I my grandfather played Negro Leagues obviously I was not alive when that happened um and 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 a lot of my family members have played either softball or baseball but it was just never my sport I was never interested in it I never played it you know I never played t-ball growing up so I had like little to no experience with baseball um but again you learn quickly because you're immersed in it and so my first season with the Rangers was last year and I went out to spring training, which they do their spring training in Arizona. Um, mm. And I was there for a month and it's just kind of like you're immersed in it and you just, you learn as you go. Um, and I still, obviously still don't know the ins and outs. I don't know, you know, the specifics and the mechanics and all that sort of thing, but you get um a really good lesson really, really quick. It's like drinking from a water hose. Um, and so <laughs> it was, uh, it was fun because the, again, the guys are so great. The um, organization is so great, really sweet. They welcomed me and I told them, listen guys, I don't, what I do know is mental health and performance. What I don't know is baseball. Um, <laughs> and they're like, that's fine. You know, we didn't bring you here to play. Um, so we, uh, <laughs> I just, I'm just picking up stuff as I go. I still don't have a clue most of the time. Um, but I do know how the mind works when folks are performing. And so that was sort of easy for me to kind of make that transition. Um, and again, the guys are super gracious and they, they take it easy on me when I don't know things, but I'm also transparent when I don't know things. So I think that makes it a little bit easier to work with. Oh my goodness. Yes. I would just be completely lost. Um, have you seen differences then in some of the issues? I mean, not anything specific, but just overall, does it seem like it's similar interactions that you've had from professional baseball players to professional football players? Or do you feel like it's, there's been some different things that maybe are just specific to major league baseball that maybe you didn't see as much with football? Yeah. Or how has that been? I'd say, um, again, culturally, they're just very different. There's um, baseball players tend to be a little bit younger because they get recruited a whole lot younger. So there's a good number of guys. Yeah, they come straight out of Mm -hmm. high school. Um, And so that was a a big difference figuring out, oh, did you did you go to college or did you come straight from high school? Um, And then the other part is, again, culturally, um, there's a larger international contingency in baseball than there is in football. And so we mm. get a lot of guys from, let's say, like Venezuela, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic. Um, mm. So a lot of folks were um, a lot of players that um, come to this country to play a sport that they love, but have never been here before. They don't speak um, English. And so 
um, a lot of challenges that they sort of have to overcome, figuring out how do I navigate this world that I've never been a part of, this um, North, uh, not North American culture, but um, the, the culture of the United States. And I've never been here before and I'm away from my family. And again, these guys can be really, really young, 14, 15, 16 years old, um, and trying to figure out how to, um, where do I go and find food? And, and who, do, who can I talk to if I have, you know, concerns about, you know, whatever sort of life stuff comes up. So that's a, a huge difference. Um, and because especially in spring training, um, they, so baseball, I'm not, I don't know if you know this, but I didn't know this either. So this is the, the thing I learned last year. So when, when baseball goes to spring training, half of the, um, half of major league baseball trains in Arizona and the other half trains in Florida. And so mm. when spring training is happening, all of these players are away from their families. It's not like in football, you might be away at training camp, but you're either at, you know, in your home city or not too far away. But in mm -hmm. baseball, these guys can be across the country, depending on what team they play for. So they're kind of like hunkered down for eight weeks, um, just doing baseball literally all day, every day away from mm. families. And it's kind of just like all they have is each other. And so luckily, again, with the Rangers, I can only speak for them. Um, a wonderful staff, wonderful group of guys who really take care of each other. But it really is um, baseball all day, all the time for for months at a time. And their season is so much longer and they're on the road so much more. Um, oh. And so it's just eat, sleep and breathe baseball until until October comes, really. Oh, my. Yeah. Baseball, I just I don't get it. But also, too, I'm um, I am. Strangely, like an ambidextrous person, so oh, cool. I write with my right hand and do some different things with my right hand, and then I play all sports with my left. That's cool. But I don't know if that's because I don't know if that's maybe because of my brain or anything. But it, I, my sister's left-handed, and so I think just like following around her, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I do all the stuff with this hand. So I don't know where it actually came from. Uh -huh. But that leads into like baseball's not my jam, like. Softball, baseball, you know, like I wish I could play it and I will definitely encourage my son to try it. <laughs> but it's like, I just, I never could decide which hand I wanted to hold the bat in <laughs> or how I was going to be able to catch something. So yeah, um, baseball is also not my jam. Um, I would be too <laughs> terrified to have a ball that hard coming that fast, oh my too gosh, close to my face. Yes. <laughs> so no, thank yes. you. I was going to ask you about that. Maybe this is completely silly and off the ball. I I just can't imagine that after you get, like if there's anybody you've worked with that has been either football or baseball, I guess, because both of those seem to be, like if you got hit with the ball, that's very high impact. Mm -hmm. um, but if something has happened and maybe it's been a one-off, I would think I would not be able to get over that hump to be able to do whatever it was I was doing or whatever it was that I was doing again. Like yeah. if I got hurt and I, somebody hit me and I was knocked out <laughs> and yeah. I suffered a really bad concussion, would I then be able to get up and do that again? Yeah. You know, like based on what that was like in the baseball, if you're a pitcher, which I also just, I just can't even imagine being a pitcher. That just seems like such a crazy position, but um, being a pitcher and yeah, you get hit. Let's say you get hit with the ball. And how am I ever going to pitch it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I could never. No, thank you. I picked my sport and now I'm done. Um, but I, I think it comes with like a lot of these guys have been playing since literally like three years old. And so it, I think for them, it feels like par for the course. 
Um, it's like, yeah, you get hit and you keep moving. Like, so for me, I can't tell you how many times I've like jammed a finger or rolled an ankle. And I think playing, ba- playing basketball. And I think some people are like, oh, I can never do that. But I've done it for so long. It just seems like it's, yeah, right. it happens, whatever we keep. I, I tore my ACL my senior in high school and oh, no. went back and played four years of college basketball. So it's kind of like, I think it once it's like your sport and you know, sort of like what comes with the territory, you just accept it. And I'm imagining it's probably very similar for these guys. Um, but the other part of it is if there's ever, I guess, a really traumatic sort of injury or something that happens on the field, that's kind of why I'm there. We also have two other mental performance coaches on staff. Um, and so if it ever gets really bad, I'm imagining that that's exactly what we're here for is like to help them work through that sort of stuff. But thankfully and knock on wood, I've not seen it. And none of our guys have wow. suffered any sort of really traumatic, scary injuries like that in baseball. Yeah. So let's hope that the season is no different. Yeah. I wish, I wish good things for the rest of your entire career that you don't have to deal with anything that's super traumatic like that. Yeah, um, but uh, well, I would love to talk a little bit about your education. Sure. Um, and what that was like, because you did do a pivot into sports. So when you got your bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. what were you thinking you were going to do with your degree then? So I wasn't really familiar with like different opportunities in psychology. I just knew I was going to be a psychologist. I also kind of knew I didn't want to do um, clinical private practice. I just seeing folks for individual sessions back to back just didn't seem interesting to me. Like I, I like to have um, just, di- I, I don't like routine. I like just different mm-hmm. things every day. And so I knew mm-hmm. that doing like a clinical private practice was not the route I wanted to take. Um, but I didn't really know what other things were available. So after um, after I graduated undergrad and got accepted into my program, um, I just kind of, the first couple of years you are just in school. And I wasn't, I don't know that I was thinking a whole lot about specific positions. In fact, that mm-hmm. was probably one of the challenges I had through my first, I'd say, two or so years in school is figure out what felt like a good fit for me. And I actually remember talking to one of my supervisors at the time. And I said, I kind of felt like I was telling him a secret. I was like, I don't want to do therapy. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and, he, and I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like I'm in this program and it's, you know, it costs a lot of money and I'm going to be here for like three more years. What am I going to do? He's like, then don't do therapy, do something else. And I was like, yeah, but like, what am I supposed to do? And so he was kind enough to sit and talk with me and help me like talk through what sounded interesting to me. And he was the one that introduced me to the sort of concept and the position of being a consultant. Um, And I was like, oh, is that what you call that? And he's like, yeah, you kind of just go in and work with the folks in whatever sort of institutional organization and then you leave like you don't have to be there and do therapy all day and I was like yes that's exactly what I want to do um (laughs) and so I knew consulting was a thing that I I had heard from him but I did again still didn't know exactly how I wanted to do that um and then um I one of my dissertation chair she's a forensic psychologist and so she sort of introduced me into um, the prison system and that's when I got really interested and when I decided I wanted to be a deputy warden. Um, and so figuring just, it's a lot happening. Um, so I did all that. And then, um, because I'm a glutton for punishment, my program had an agreement with the business school at the time that folks in my program could get an MBA for free. And so me and three of my wow. classmates decided that we wanted to punish ourselves more. And so we all went and did the program together <laughs> in the middle of our doctorate program. 
Um, and wow. while I was in the MBA program, I learned a whole lot more about like, business and more consulting and just the different things I could do with these sort of two different skill sets. Um, and I kind of had, I got more information from there, but again, still didn't really, really know what to do with it other than like, I wanted to work in prisons. Um, but it really wasn't until I started coaching, um, and when I was still in grad school, I was coaching AAU and I was an assistant coach and my head coach, she had a different way of interacting with our players than I did. Obviously I'm trained as a mental health professional. So I was a little bit um, softer, I'd say. <laughs> and I remember she asked me to help her put together like a player development program, like one to help the, the um, team bond and two to like get the most out of them. And I was like, this is really cool. I should get paid to do this. But I still didn't know what sports like <laughs> was. And then it wasn't until, like I said, I, I moved to Chicago and talked to Dr. Winnie Ballaby that like it all sort of like fell into place. And it was like the light bulb happened. I was like, oh, this is what I should be doing. Wow. And within all of that, you were doing all of those things and going to school and doing clinical hours. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, so you're doing a hundred different things. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah. So as I want to say, um, so my program was a five-year program and the first four years, uh, my doc program in the first four years is coursework and the fifth year is internship. So um, the first four years of school, while you're doing coursework, you also have to do your clinical hours. And I think by the time we graduated, we were supposed to have accumulated um, over 2000 hours. Um, and so I think we were like to average anywhere from like 16 to 20 hours a week in, in whatever sort of clinical rotation we had, in addition to whatever schoolwork that we had. Um, so yeah, that's what I was doing. <laughs> oh my gosh. <clears throat> Incredibly ambitious. Um, well, did you do any Greek life or anything? I did. I, um, I pledged, um, the first and the finest Alpha Cap Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Um, oh. but I, I pledged when I was an undergrad, so when I was in grad school, there really was not a whole lot of extracurricular time. Um, like, and not. if there was any extra time to do anything, it was really just with my classmates because we were all had the same classes at the same time, commiserating together. Um, and I played <laughs> like pickup at um, open gyms and stuff. But uh, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of time for a lot of extra things during grad school. Yes, I sadly know how that goes. <laughs> um, and having to like, Oh gosh, I have to write this 30 something page paper mm -hmm. that I didn't get to. And now I'm going to go lock myself in the library for 48 hours and get it done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny because when I graduated, actually, so I said four years of coursework and fifth year of internship. Um, my program requires that we finish our dissertation before going to internship. And so on internship, I didn't have any dissertation work to do. And so I remember my first Saturday on internship and I was literally confused as to what I was supposed to be doing because every other Saturday for the past four years, I had been writing or reading or doing some sort of <laughs> homework assignment. And I had to figure out what do people do on Saturdays? Cause I didn't have a clue. <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your dissertation topic seems incredibly intriguing. What led you to want to do your dissertation on developing a reentry program for female juvenile offenders? Yeah. So again, wanted to be a warden. Um, and I remember right. I, uh, I can't remember what year in school, but um, I was still in grad school and I taught along with, I think 
three or four other of my classmates, we um, and our my dissertation chair, we all developed a course for um, lifers at this one particular women's prison. And okay. it was, um, I think it was like lifetime development or some sort of like intro sort of 100 or 200 level psychology course that we created for these lifers because they didn't have a lot of programs for lifers at that particular prison. Um, oh and so mm. when we were teaching this class, I noticed that a lot of these women um, behaved much younger than their chronological age. And that was intriguing to me. And so I talked to my supervisor about it and she was like, well, sometimes what happens, especially if there's trauma is you kind of get stuck at the age where the traumatic thing happened. And so they never really sort of progressed patent progress past that sort of age in their life and so mm. um kind of social emotionally they're immature to, to for lack of a better phrase and so that got me thinking about well I wonder what it would have been like if they hadn't been traumatized at whatever particular age it was and so that led me to figuring out well if we could have helped them at 10, 12, 15, whatever age it was to not come back to prison, I wonder how their lives would be different right now. Um, and so that kind of got me thinking, well, what do, what does someone that age, what does some, um, a girl that age, what would she need if she were to be in trouble so that she doesn't have to come back to jail? And so that's kind of wow. where the idea started. And then it just kind of took off from there. I also knew that there weren't a whole lot of programs, um, especially in the state of Ohio, um, at, cause that's where I went to school. Um, there weren't a, a lot of programs for female offenders, especially, um, um, juvenile female offenders. And oh, I, wow. and as someone who identifies personally and professionally as a feminist, I thought, well, that can't be great. Um, and I wanted to see what could be done about it. And so that's kind of where the idea came from. Wow. That is intense. I would imagine that working with offenders I guess at any age and then to say that they're in there for life oh my gosh yeah I feel like that would just be so personally emotionally heavy to carry yeah um, I mean how were you able to forge relationships when people are in situations where they're there for life yeah well I think and it started for me when I was actually an undergrad um, um my senior year in my pro my undergrad program they required us to do like a mini clinical rotation to kind of get us ready to do actual clinical rotations once we got to grad school. And my clinical rotation happened to be at a, um, a federal prison in the area and it was mm -hmm. a woman's prison. And that was the, like my first um, experiences and interactions with folks who were incarcerated. And it was so mm -hmm. interesting because I was going in there with ideas of what I thought these women were going to be like based on what you see on TV. And let me yeah. tell you, like seeing like Orange is the New Black, like some of it's accurate and a lot of it's not. Um, but what I found, oh, wow. what I found <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm thinking right now. <laughs> Orange is the New Black? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, I will say there's a, there's a ton of it that, that is accurate. And obviously for entertainment and production value, a ton of it is not accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the thing that I found um, that has stuck with me from now and from then until now is that they're humans. And so yeah. instead of like, Yes, she was accused and convicted of, you know, X, Y, or Z crime, but that also could have been me had I made the wrong choice on the, on the you know, any given day. That could have been my mom, that could have been my sisters, that could have been my best friend, that could have been someone that I know who was in, has, was, um, dealt a particular set of circumstances that leaves you with not 
a lot of really great choices. And so sometimes people make choices, you know, because they have to. And sometimes people make choices because, you know, they want to. Um, but I, what I found quickly is that it could have been any one of us had we just made a different choice um, and that they're all humans that, you know, deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. So that said, moving through the prison system throughout my sort of academic career, um, I felt it was pretty easy to make connections with folks because um, I just treated them like humans. And sometimes you'd be surprised how often that doesn't happen in prisons. You know, people, they're the forgotten population, really. Um, nobody cares what kind of conditions they live in. Nobody cares. Like on the outside, nobody's, no one's thinking about prisoners on a regular, on a regular day. And so for folks like me to go in who genuinely care about them and want them to be better and want them to heal from whatever sort of mental health challenges that they're having or interpersonal challenges that they're having. When, when you treat people with respect and with dignity and, um, and you see them, you see their humanity, they respond to that just like I would if someone were to treat me with dignity and respect and see my humanity. Wow. Spoken like a warden. (laughs) (laughs) You definitely have a passion for that. I may, Um, I may have a a second wind in me for a different career after this whole story. I know (laughs) that's, that's incredible. Um, Oh my gosh. It's just, I could just talk about that all day it really was like sports is great sports is fun but prison was prison was fun too like of course they have all the crazy stories um but I also just liked it because it was like it's a whole world that most people will never ever see um Mm -hmm. and it was just like a lot of fun and uh, of course there are a lot of days that were sad and you know folks are going through things and you can't always help everybody and you know that's just kind of it comes with the job but it was a lot of fun and sometimes I miss it Oh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Um, what was the craziest thing that had happened while you were um, working in a prison system? Yeah, well, there was one time and there was this one youth resident and he was very unhappy. <laughs> he wasn't happy with me. I just happened to walk on the unit at the wrong time. But he was um, really unhappy with one of the staff members. I think he wanted like his snack or something and he didn't get it. And he, he was honestly, he was just having a, a hard day. But I mean, mm-hmm. you're locked up. Who's not having a hard day, right? So he was having a hard day and he decided that in order to get the um, staff's attention, he was going to use the bathroom on his bed and then throw it at the door. No. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I came in at the right time. Um, but luckily I was able to talk to him. I said, listen, dude. Like, I get you're upset, but all you're doing is making it worse for yourself. Just clean the bed off. And so I kind of, like, talked him down, and he's like, you're right, I'm sorry. And so he was able to clean up the bed. But, like, you know, again, we're dealing with children whose brains are not fully developed and likely dealing with trauma. And so, you know, judgment wasn't the best. Um, But he was able to kind of course correct and clean up and apologize, and then he got what he wanted. And so that was part of the fun of it is, like, these kids are dealing with stuff that they don't have necessarily control over and they're doing the best they can with what they have. And so if you can kind of just show them like, listen, not everybody deserves to be cursed at and have poop thrown at. Like sometimes people do deserve to be treated with respect, especially if they're treating you with respect. And to kind of see them kind of get it and learn who to trust and how to treat them accordingly was really cool to see. Wow. That's just, that's so incredible that you did work like that. That is, um, <laughs> I'll say noble. it's not for everybody. Um, I yeah. don't think you have to be a special kind of weird to, to be like, yeah, I want to go to prison. 
Um, <laughs> but I do think because if, if it's something that you want to do, then you're the kind of person that needs to be there, right? Like we don't no, want people, absolutely it, in whatever role you're in, whether you're in sports or in prison or, you know, whatever sort of environment that you work in, if that's not the place for you and you don't enjoy it, then obviously you shouldn't be there because it's hard to be your best self um, for these people who really are um, depending on you to show up and be great. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, that kind of gives me a segue of what has been, you know, some of the best guidance or wisdom that anybody has shared or imparted to you? Um, the best guidance or wisdom I think has been to trust myself and to not just like my training as a professional, but also just like myself as a human. Um, I've been learning to hone, I guess, like my intuition Um, because I've had life experiences that have taught me things and I've had a lot of school that has taught me things. And Mm -hmm. sometimes when you're in the middle of, let's say a crisis or a big disagreement between different departments, um, sometimes it can feel like you're the only one who, maybe I'm the one who's wrong or like maybe I'm in the twilight zone and I got to figure out, you know, where did I go wrong? But if you can just take a minute and, and just trust yourself and it doesn't mean you're right, but it does mean that you have something to say that could be beneficial to this conversation. Um, and so learning to trust myself and trust my gut has been super, super helpful. Hmm. Okay. What would be your best piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's wanting to do what you're doing um I I think honestly outside of like trusting yourself um I think the other piece of advice is know that you belong here because this field will make you feel every day like you that you don't belong here um Mm. obviously it's a male-dominated field it's overwhelmingly white as it relates to staff members. Um, and mm-hmm. so again, you, it can leave you feeling isolated and alone and a little bit like maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Um, but if this is what you want and this feels like a good fit for you, then you stay here and you, you know, stay firm and know that you belong here because I, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome and I like to think of it as, um, I don't think of it as imposter syndrome as much as I think of it as you have been, trained for years to believe that you don't belong here so it's no wonder that you think you don't belong here there have been so many messages that say that this was not made for you and it wasn't made for you the system was not created for people who look like me except that doesn't mean that the system is right and so instead of owning that and saying i have imposter syndrome i like to say no this is just a manifestation of a system that was built to oppress you and i'm here to subvert that system That's incredible. Wonderful, incredible advice. I'm actually going to take that and apply it to my life. You have enlightened me for today. You're Um, welcome. That one was free. (laughs) Thank you. Free game. Um, But no, I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. And like I said, I feel like at another time, I'm going to just call you and talk about your work in the prison okay. <laughs> to juvenile detention centers. Well, I've got I'm stories so for days. Yeah, I'm I've so got stories intrigued. for days. So you just call me oh, whenever you want to. I know. I'm so, gosh, I'm so intrigued. 
Um, but no, uh, I, I wish you nothing but the best um, in what you're doing with your private practice and with working with professional athletes. I think that is also incredibly amazing. And I think that the mental health space, oh my gosh, I feel like post pandemic, y'all are out, y'all have a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to call it job <laughs> security. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind to say the least. My gosh. And then I don't know if this is too personal. Do you go and seek mental health? Like, do you have therapy or do you? Yes. Oh, I love it. No, I'm not currently in therapy, but I um, have been and I intend on going back. It's just been it's I enjoy it because it's a, it's a time to sometimes I forget that I'm also human. And so me being yeah. in like these very sort of um, sort of triggering and trying um, circumstances and situations, I forget that I can be impacted, too. And so it's nice to have a space to be able to kind of let all that stuff out. I mean, I have a wonderful support system with my wife and my family, but it's also nice to have a professional opinion and perspective. And so I love, I always encourage people to go to therapy. I loved going to therapy, which is why I'm going to go back. So yes, yeah. therapy for everybody. Awesome. Okay. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> go to therapy. Um, but again, Dr. Nicole Charles Lennon. Because I was just going to say Nicole, but I'm like, let me put, let me put the dots on. <laughs> um, again, it was wonderful to speak with you. And I think you gave some amazing advice. Like I said, you really did um, brighten my day with some oh. of your advice. And then just, gosh, with your journey, um, blown away. You're an overly ambitious and <laughs> curious person. And I can absolutely see how, you know, especially being like a lifelong learner, it's like you want to help people and you're not sometimes taking the time to be like oh yeah but I'm a person and I just took all that in and I haven't given myself space or time to process so um I I hope that you're able to give yourself some time to process everything that I'm sure you're going through yeah Uh, just day to day you're human you've earned it well thank you thank you so much thank you so much um but it was such a pleasure to talk to you so I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day thank you thank Um, you for having me